This podcast is supported by the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, one of America's leading research medical schools. Icon Mount Sinai is the academic arm of the eight-hospital Mount Sinai Health System in New York City. It's consistently among the top recipients of NIH funding. Researchers at Icon Mount Sinai have made breakthrough discoveries in many fields vital to advancing the health of patients, including cancer, COVID, and long COVID, cardiology, neuroscience, and artificial intelligence. The Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. We find a way. Before the show starts, I'd like to ask you to consider subscribing to News from Science. You've heard from some of our editors on here, David Grimm, Mike Price. They handle the latest scientific news with accuracy and good cheer, which, which is pretty amazing considering it can sometimes be over 20 articles a week. And you hear from our journalists. They're all over the world writing on every topic under the sun, and they come on here to share their stories. The money from subscriptions, which is about 50 cents a week, goes directly to supporting nonprofit science journalism, tracking science policy, our investigations, international news, and yes, when we find out new mummy secrets, we report on that too. Support nonprofit science journalism with your subscription at science.org news. Scroll down and click subscribe on the right side. That's science.org news. Click subscribe. This is the Science Podcast for February 24th, 2023. I'm Sarah Crespi. First up this week, shrinking MRI machines. Staff writer Adrian Cho is here to talk about how engineers and physicists are teaming up to make MRI scanners smaller and cheaper. Next, the smell of Titsi Fly Love. Producer Kevin McLean talks with researcher Shaima Abraham about how Titsi Flies use odors to attract each other and how understanding this interaction can help prevent the flies from transmitting diseases like African sleeping sickness. MRI machines are expensive in the range of a million, two million dollars each. They're also pretty big. You go to the machine, it's not gonna come to you, no matter how incapacitated or ill that you are. News writer Adrian Cho is here with a story about how different teams, engineers, physicists, companies have begun to shrink the MRI, both in size and cost. Hi, Adrian. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm good. Before we get into how to make it more simple or more accessible, let's just take a moment to really appreciate what happens in this full-blown MRI machine. You know, how does it take these images from the body? It's pretty remarkable. An MRI machine is really a radio. It's manipulating the protons and making them spin like little gyroscopes to produce radio waves. The protons in your flesh, in blood, in gray matter, connective tissue, bone, what have you, every proton acts like a little compass needle. So what the MRI machine does is it applies a big magnetic field. Suppose it's going in the upward direction. All these little compass needles then line up with it. Then you can apply radio waves and they'll tip the compass needles down into, say, the horizontal plane. And when they're in the horizontal plane, they go spinning around in that plane like gyroscopes at a frequency that depends on the magnetic field and they radiate radio waves. And that's the basic signal. But if that's all you did, you wouldn't see anything. So what the scanner does is it actually applies these very clever sequences of pulses. 
you've got all these protons are all lined up vertically. You tip them down and they all go spinning around in this horizontal plane. And for various reasons, they start to fan out. They start to lose their alignment. And you can apply more radio waves to reverse that. So they come back together and this will produce an echo. That echo will be different in different tissues. It can be stronger or weaker. If you can figure out the strength of the echo coming from different points, you can make a map of the different tissues. To get the spatial information out, it does these crazy things where it applies very quickly these gradients that make this magnetic field stronger or weaker to one side of the head or the other. And these gradients can make the protons spin faster or slower. So they will radiate at different frequencies or they can get out of sync, in which case their radio waves will cancel or they can be in sync so that they reinforce each other. And by applying all these gradients, the scanner can actually figure out how strong the echo is coming from different slices and directions. You put all that information together and it can figure out how strong that echo is from each point in your head, it makes a map of the echo and it makes a map of your brain. And so that gives you tissue information and spatial information all in one giant package, right? That's right. And it all happens together in these sequences of pulses. This is very big because it does all of that around your body. So it can be the top of your body, the bottom of your body, different tissues, different layouts. But another reason this is so big and so expensive is the type of magnet being used to get these signals. If you go to a standard MRI, there's this gigantic tube-like magnet, and that's a big old superconducting electromagnet. And it produces a field typically of you know 1.5 Tesla which is 30,000 times as strong as the Earth's magnetic field. And that is a very expensive, very high-tech piece of equipment. And that's what makes MRIs so expensive. And it's what makes them not portable, right? Because it needs to be near a giant power source. It needs to have the cryogenic system with a liquid helium. You know, it's going to make enormous magnetic field. So you want to keep it in some shielded place where you don't have car keys and wrenches around, right? Yeah, you don't want a bunch of stuff flying into your magnet. Literally fly through the air, right? It's because you're trying to polarize the protons. This is my favorite number in the story. Even with this incredible magnet, still just a minuscule fraction of protons are being affected. Yeah, it's 0.001% roughly. Let's talk about how to make this magnet smaller so we can move it around and it costs less money. So there have been a small community of people for decades now working to try to realize imaging at lower fields, much lower fields. And this is really coming to fruition right now. There's a company called Hyperfine that has a scanner out that has FDA approval. It's a brain scanner and its magnet has nothing to do with electromagnets at all. It's just a pair of permanent magnet discs. And the idea is that if you can get rid of the cryogenics, if you can get rid of the giant power supply, you can actually take it to the patient. You can do scanning bedside. If somebody comes in and they're unconscious because they've been in a car accident, you can put them in a scanner right away and at least tell whether or not they've had a massive hemorrhage or something. I talk to a lot of doctors and they point out that one of the big risks, even in a first-class hospital that has its own MRI machine and you know is not going to have to send you across the county, is that people who are in the intensive care unit are very fragile and simply transporting them to the MRI scanner and back 
involves multiple people. It involves a high level of risk. Things go wrong. So there's this potential if you could make a smaller scanner and you could just scan somebody in the hospital bed, you might have a lot of advantages. That sounds good. That's a great idea. But like we've just spent a lot of time talking about how having this high magnetism is giving you a lot of resolution. So taking it down to like 123rd, what's the trade-off there in terms of what you can actually see? This is exactly the point. There's a big downside. The polarization shrinks in proportion to the magnetic field. So if you go down by a factor of 25, the polarization is only 1 125th is big. The signal to noise ratio goes down much worse. So getting a signal out is very hard. But it's not impossible. If you were a star, a radio source in the sky, and you were particularly noisy, radio astronomers could still get the signal out just by staring at you forever. And the noise would average out and the signal would emerge. You can't do that with a human being because you can't keep somebody in an MRI machine for, for two days. Just stay here for two days. For two days, right. But so you have to get the information out much faster. There's this sort of confluence of technological advances that have allowed engineers and physicists to figure out how to do that. It includes things like better permanent magnets, in particular, these neodymium iron boron magnets that were developed in the 1980s for use in the little motors that put the windows up and down in your car. Better electronics, so faster, quieter electronics help technologies like noise canceling to sense radio interference from other devices and cancel it out. And then there are these specific aspects of working at a low field that you can also turn to your advantage. Turns out that one of the limiting factors for a high field MRI scanner is that it has to manipulate the protons by applying these radio waves. And since it's working at a higher magnetic field, it has to apply higher frequency radio waves. They have more energy. And that pulsing, if you go too fast, will heat the patient. And that's obviously not something that you want. It turns out as you go down in uh, field strength, you go down in frequency for the radio waves, the heating gets much, much smaller and in fact becomes negligible. It's like refinement in a bunch of different directions to kind of take advantage altogether of a weaker magnetic field. Right. And then in the last decade or so, the thing that has really emerged is artificial intelligence and machine learning, pattern recognition. So if you feed it information that's maybe not as complete as you would hope it would be, you can use artificial intelligence to help make a better image. You mentioned there's a company that has one that's been approved by FDA. There are other companies moving towards this goal as well. What does this look like in the field? How has it been used? How does it compare with the high field MRI? With this particular scanner, the Hyperfine scanner, which has been approved in the United States, they have about 100 of these in the field, and mostly they're being used for studies, these clinical studies, to validate what the scanner can do and what its limitations are and when you might use it. Researchers at Yale New Haven Hospital have used this scanner extensively. They've looked at stroke victims. They've looked at people who've come through the ICU. There was a paper in early 2021 that described how they used the scanner just as the COVID pandemic hit. And they had all these patients in the ICU, many of whom had COVID, many of whom were intubated and sedated. And they used this scanner to look at 20 COVID patients, and they found that eight of them had had events like hemorrhages or strokes. The doctors I spoke to pointed out that not only were these people too sick to be 
taken to the traditional MRI, but this is the very beginning of the pandemic, and they can't take an infected patient to the MRI because they infect the entire MRI suite, and now nobody can use it. So their only choice in this case was this low-field scan, and it worked. They were able to find these very sad cases where people had had brain bleeds because of COVID infection. For these machines, how much cheaper can they actually be than the high-field MRI scanner that we've talked about? Hyperfine is the first company to get FDA approval for a brain scanner. Right now, their machines sell for about $250,000. If you take a 1.5 Tesla MRI and you include all the stuff you got to build around it, it's probably a couple million bucks. So we're talking about an eighth of the cost. What about their competitors that are building machines with similar technology? There are a number of groups doing this. One of the most interesting cases is this group in the Netherlands. First of all, they have a radically different magnet. They have this crazy array that's shaped like a cylinder with 4,098 individual thumb-sized magnets. And they're all slightly different orientations so that the inside of that device has a very uniform horizontal magnetic field. And it has almost no magnetic field on the outside. So it's a very, very clever design. They're hoping that their more uniform magnetic field means that they'll have to do less things with AI. And so it will be a little simpler in terms of the computation. That design has been picked up by a company called Multiwave in Switzerland, and they're trying to bring it to market. And they hope to apply for FDA approval sometime around June. But the folks who are sort of the leaders of this effort, they have made all their plans open source. So you can potentially build this thing if you download the plans. They're hoping that they can get people in low to middle income countries to actually build these things because there's no IP barrier to doing that. And all this is sort of coming to a head in this very interesting project that is underway in Uganda at the Cure Children's Hospital of Uganda in Mbale, where they are treating children with hydrocephalus. So this is something goes wrong, your child has an infection, they start to collect fluid in the brain, it presses on the brain tissue, it can be permanently debilitating, it can be fatal. And the solution is to relieve the pressure. The traditional way to treat this would be to put a shunt from your brain all the way down to your belly. The problem is the shunt often clogs. It invariably has to be replaced. You can't live on one forever. So they developed a technique that actually opened a small passage in the brain to the ventricles in the middle, and that reestablishes the natural flow of the cerebral spinal fluid and obviates the need for a stent. So they've been doing this using CT scans, which are a form of X-ray to guide the surgeon. They're hoping to start, and they're waiting for the final approval of this, is a comparative study at this hospital where they'll use a CT scanner, they'll use the hyperfine scanner, which is known as a swoop, and they'll use the scanner that was designed by the, the group in the Netherlands to see if they can do this with MRI instead of CT scan, which has the advantage for children in that CT scans involve a fair amount of X-ray radiation, right? So it's not entirely risk-free. And MRI is, in that respect, much safer. You know, these scanners, there is a big trade-off. If you go to the lower field, even with all the additional technology, you still have a lower resolution scan. And there's no two ways around that. 
it's this big conceptual issue. Is the best scan the highest resolution scan or is the best scan the scan that you can bring to the most people? And so this is a pilot study that is going to see if a low field scanner can be taken out into places that don't normally have MRI and can reliably be used to help people who normally would not have any access to an MRI. Hydrocephalus is a relatively simple disease from the standpoint of, you know, is there a big volume of cerebral spinal fluid there or isn't there? So you don't have to worry about the details as much. That's very cool. How is the experience of having one of these scans? What's the experience like with the low field versus the high field for the patient? So I have had a high field scan. It involved getting up, I think, at like 1230 at night and driving 25 miles. And I park in the back and I get out and I have to walk into this big trailer from like, you know, a tractor trailer. And there's nothing but the whir of right of all these machines running compressors to generate liquid helium to keep that magnet cool for the power supply the 480 volt power supply they give you a locker and they say take everything metal on your person off and stick it in the locker you know your belt comes off and your keys come out and all this stuff goes in the locker and then you go into the room with the actual scanner it's incredibly cool you lie on this bed this automatic tray slides you in if you're claustrophobic, you probably feel like you've been slid into a crypt. But I felt like I was slid into one of those life support capsules on like space sci-fi, you know, <laughs> yep. trip to the stars. And you have to wear earplugs because it's going to be really loud and you can't see anything, but it's not uncomfortable. But, you know, you hear the magnet starts pulsing, bam, 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 bam. And it goes through all these different pulse sequences over and over and over again. Your only contact with the outside is a voice in this little speaker that's inside so the tech can tell you you need to hold still, you got 20 minutes to go, and it's fascinating. And it's like you're on your way to Mars or something like that. This is literally the most positive description I've ever heard of getting an MRI. Oh, no, I thought it was great. I thought it was fantastic. I had a scan with a swoop, and it was just really remarkably different. You're in a hospital bed. This thing comes up behind you, and then if you're able-bodied, you can scoot yourself in. If you're not, the techs will have to, to help you in. To me, it felt a lot like when I was a kid, my brother messed around with cars. You know, like got a skinny under the car to look up and see you know, where the crazy noise is coming from. And so you put your head in, but you know your arms and legs are free. You can talk to people. You can hold somebody's hand. You have to hold still, but it's a very different experience. I didn't wear earplugs. And you still hear the same pulsing, the click, 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 going over and over again, but it's much quieter. And you don't have to divest yourself of all metal? Oh, no. You know, if you have an IV, right, you can have a pole right next to the scanner and it won't make any difference. It's obviously far, far, far less of an ordeal to get one of these scans than it is to get a standard scan. Thank you so much, Adrian. My pleasure, Sarah. Adrian Cho is a staff news writer for Science. You can find a link to the story we discussed at science.org slash podcast. Stay tuned for a conversation about TC Fly attraction with producer Kevin McLean and researcher Shaima Abraham. Shaima is a postdoctoral researcher in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale University. In the insect world, there are millions of species flying, hopping, and crawling in just about every habitat you can imagine. 
So finding a mate can be a challenge. To do this, some insects turn to chemical communication, the use of pheromones to attract mates or even just find members of the same species. Identifying the specialized compounds that an insect can recognize and understanding how they respond to them provides an important window into the biological and social lives of insects. Shaima Abrahim studies behavior and chemical communication mechanisms in insects. She and her colleagues identified a volatile sex attractant, a type of chemical pheromone, in tsetse flies, which transmit sleeping sickness. Shaima, welcome to the Science Podcast. Thanks, uh, Kevin, for having me with you today. Great. Well, first of all, Shaima, can you talk a little bit about the tsetse fly? It sounds like even within the insect world, it has some pretty unique characteristics. That's right. If we just talk about tsetse fly, tsetse fly is spread disease of human and animal. And these flies bite human and animal when they bite, transmit a tiny parasite, which you call terbenosomes. Terbenosomes cause disease that have enormous effect on health. So actually, this is the reason why we're interested to study this insect, to try to find a compound to uh, prevent, transmit this disease. So tsetse flies spread sleeping sickness by transmitting a type of parasite, a trypanosome. And behaviorally, they also have some sort of unique characteristics as well, right? That's absolutely right. If we just talk about the fly, normally the fly laying eggs. But sexy fly, they don't lay eggs. They keep the eggs inside. And after time, they, instead of laying eggs, they just lay larvae. And this is, I feel, this is very unique for flies. It's a behave the same as a human or, a, you know, vertebrate, they laying baby in the state of eggs. So this is really interesting about this uh, insect behavior. And if we move for different behavior like courtship, when we observe in our study, uh, when we introduce male to female, they start meeting in few seconds. And when, when the male saw the female or smells the odor of the female, just jump in one second or three seconds and they start to meet as tornado. I call it tornado. I don't know if this is the right word, but this is what I observed. They just start to attach to each other like tornado. Okay, so it's it's a really rapid response and they do this sort of tornado behavior when they attach to each other. To be honest, when I start uh, working with this fly, I really fall in love with this fly because they have very completely different behavior from other insects I have studied before. Could you maybe explain just generally, like, what is a pheromone exactly? Pheromone is a chemical signal that fly produce to communicate with each other in the same species. And uh, also pheromone can be used to warn from predator or attract to food or for meeting. So pheromone have different purposes can attract for feeding, for meeting, or just warning for a predator or parasite or parasitoid in the real world in general. And they have really specialized abilities to identify just certain chemicals. There's like a specific pheromone for a specific species, for example. Is that right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. If the sex hormone, this is specific only for species. Think about it this way is a fly talking to each other. So this is a language. So how do you actually go about identifying a pheromone? How does that process go? So smelling is very important for insects. All flies actually depend on smell 
to find the food, to find the right partner, and also keeping from natural enemies. So I was wondering if the behavior I have observed, the fly using the olfaction to do this turning to behavior. And when uh, I have this question, I start by looking for the critical hydrocarbon of the fly itself. I use the fly, I soak the fly in hexane, like a solvent. Then I use this hexane and doing my experiment. So you have the tsetse flies, uh, and in order to collect the pheromone, that's when you're soaking it in the hexane. And then from there, you're sort of identifying all the different compounds that are on the fly. Yeah, that's right. But before I identify the compound, I want to make it uh, sure that the, actually there is something in the cuticle hydrocarbon of the fly itself that attracts the fly. So from this experiment, I want to make sure that the fly using the olfactory system or the smell is scale to identify her partner. That's why I use the, the body wash. I, will, I call it body wash of the flies for a different status. Okay. So you're taking the extract from the fly and then you're placing it on like a, a, a decoy, basically. That's right. To see if other males, to see if females respond to it. Is that right? That's completely right. I already test separately male and female. Like I introduced the three with the hexane extract of different flies. And I introduced first the female. The female did not attract at all to any of this uh, hexane extract. But when I introduced the male, interestingly, the male attract only to the female extract. And more to the virgin extract, the virgin female more than the, the mated female. Okay, so at this point, you know that there's something in that extract that is important, and you know that it's something that the males can identify on the females. Okay, so then what, what happens after that? After that, we turn to uh, take the advantage of chemistry. Then we carried out gas chromatography, right, to identify the compound inside the hexane extract. And when we identify the compound, interestingly, we found 60 new compounds. It's not identified before. And we uh, test individually each of these compounds in different behavior assays. And we found only three of them as a group of those compounds called the missile esters. Uh, missile esters is very known in, in insect world that are formed in other insect species. So that's like a good sign to test those compounds. So you and your colleagues in the paper Mention that in this world of insect chemical ecology, there are compounds that can be arrestants, aphrodisiacs, and attractants, and some of them can kind of be a combination of these. What do those all mean? And, and what did you find in these pheromones in the, in the tsetse flies? Okay, so normally the compound, it could be one of those, like just attract the fly. For example, this compound exists in food for fly. They will go attracted to the food by smelling this odor. Or arrestant, that, what does mean arrestant? That the flies smell the odor and the go and arrest like uh, frozen. They will not move. And aphrodisiac, this more like sexual attraction. So when the animal or the male smell this odor, that's saying this is from the female. This is means aphrodisiac for more. So actually in our compound, which is I find this is the phenomena to have the three character in one compound. And that's why I feel this is good candidate to use it in the field because it attracts and the arrest like freeze the fly 
and also able to attract the male. Like uh, when the male go smell the odor, they will go to smell the odor of the female. So when the tsetse flies are infected with the parasite, they bite a human, it passes the parasite, it causes the disease. But you also, you also looked at the chemical profile of tsetse flies infected with this parasite. What did you find there? So that's really a great question because we have find interesting results. We use gas chromatography again to identify the chemical profile or we compare the chemical profile of infected and uninfected flies. Why we did this? Because first we did behavior and we find infected fly behave differently from healthy fly. In this case, we did the competition experiments. The first experiment when we introduce a female with two different kinds of male, one infected and one uninfected, the female copulate with both kinds of male with equal frequency. There is no preference. The female can copulate with both male, infected and uninfected. But the interesting that when we did the opposite experiment, that the male between two females, one infected and one uninfected, the male copulate only with uninfected female with 100% of the tribe. This is fantastic result. Especially in behavior, you will never find all the replicates have the same result. In behavior, there is difference. But in this experiment, I have 100% of the trial, like all the replicates I have done, the male only copulate with uninfected female. So from this result, I would say that the receptivity of the female, it changes, decreases. Because the female is not responsive anymore to male. The male try to copulate with the female, but the female refuse, just running. In the arena, make us wonder what happened. Like, is there something in uh, chemical profile of the infected fly is different? And when we actually run uh, gas chromatography uh, spectrometry again to compare between the chemical profile of uh, uninfected and the infected fly, we found 21 small volatile compound. It's only specific for mated infected flies. That's our first time, of course. Anyone identify this small Compound. That's interesting result. Just to go over it again. So you have the experiment where it is a female and there's an infected and uninfected male. And in that case, there was no difference at all. But when you have one male and you have an infected and an uninfected female, that is when you see all of the males will only mate with the uninfected female. Because the female, the infected female refused to copulate with the male, not because the male did not go the female. You know what I mean? Yes. Yes. So the female refused, the infected female refused to copulate. If the male go to Troy, but they refuse the female. Interesting. So you identified different compounds on the infected female. What did those, those sort of tell you? So, uh, okay, this is will be next study, we go into a study broadly who produced this compound, the parasite or the insect itself, because we don't know. But my prospect or my uh, guessing, more guessing, uh, it's not fact, that uh, uh, the parasite producing this 21 small volatile, because comparing to mosquito study, the mosquito which is infected with malaria, also the female infected with malaria also have some volatile compound. And one of those compounds, actually, we found in Setsi fly. So that's why my guessing go into the parasite who's produced these compounds. 
I wanted to zoom out a little bit on this and talk about, you know, you, you mentioned that sleeping sickness is, it's a really serious and potentially fatal disease that affects a lot of people, you know, particularly in rural communities in Africa. How can learning about the chemical ecology of tsetse flies and learning about their behavior, how, how can that sort of reduce the impact of this disease? Okay, so now we, we identify some of those compounds, right? We, we identify compound actually uh, produced by the fly itself. Think about if we use one of those compounds, like 21, a small compound that inhibits the courtship. So what will happen in the real world? If the fly did not copulate, they will not lay uh, larvae. So the number of fly will reduce, right? Second, if we use compound which is act as attractant, arrestant, and aphrodisiac for move in the trip, that able to attract many flies in the trip and that we reduce the number of the flies in the real world. So this is how chemical ecology can help by understanding the chemical profile of the insect and the behavior after the flies smell those odor we found. Well, Shaima, thank you so much for joining us. This has been really, really interesting. Thank you. I enjoy really talking to you. Thank you, Kevin. Shaima Abrahim is a postdoctoral fellow in the Carlson Lab in the Department of Molecular, Cellular, and Developmental Biology at Yale. She was also excited to share that she's an Egyptian Muslim mother of two. You can read the paper we discussed at science.org. And that concludes this edition of the Science Podcast. Thank you to everyone who filled in our survey. We had a great response, and we are so excited about all the comments that we got. If you have more comments or suggestions, you can write to us at sciencepodcast at aaas.org. You can listen to the show on the science website, science.org slash podcast, or search for Science Magazine on any podcasting app. This show was edited and produced by me, Sarah Crespi, and Kevin McLean, with production help from Podigy. Jeffrey Cook composed the music. On behalf of Science and its publisher, AAAS, thanks for joining us. This week's episode is brought to you in part by Science Careers. Looking for some career advice? Wondering how to get ahead or how to strike a better work-life balance? Visit our site to read how others are doing it. Use our individual development plan tool, access topic-specific article collections, or search for an exciting new job. Science Careers, produced by Science and AAAS, is a free website full of resources to help get the most out of your career. Visit sciencecareers.org today to get started. You listen to us to hear about new discoveries in science, but did you know we're a part of the American Association for the Advancement of Science? AAAS is a nonprofit publisher and a science society. When you join AAAS, you help support our mission to advance science for the benefit of all. Become a AAAS member at the silver level or above to receive a year's subscription to science and an exclusive gift. Join today by visiting AAAS.org slash join. That's A-A-A-S dot O-R-G slash join.